Well, hey everyone. Welcome to episode 298 of F-Stop Collaborate and Listen with your host, Matt Payne. This week on the podcast, I was joined by Aussie photographer, Matt Palmer. Matt was the Australian Professional Photographer of the Year in 2019 and won the Natural Landscape Photography Awards Project in 2021. Before entering the landscape scene, Matt previously photographed in commercial, portrait, wedding, sporting, and music genres, and was documenting some of the world's biggest musicians, such as Metallica, Pearl Jam, Tool, Nick Cave, Joan Jett, and hundreds more. His work is usually instilled with a very strong sense of justice and spans several genres. He lives in bright Australia, where he runs a gallery with his partner, Mika Boynton. Matt and I had a great chat covering a wide variety of subjects, so sit back, relax, and enjoy our conversation. Before we dive in, I want to mention that this week's episode is brought to you by Nature Photographers Network. NPN is a wonderful community of like-minded individuals that are super generous with their time and helping each other improve their photography. There's an incredibly helpful critique forum for multiple genres of nature photography, including wildlife, landscape, abstracts, and a lot more. There is a lot of full-time professionals offering critique, and it's just a wonderful place to engage with other photographers. For just $49 per year, you can join the community on NPN and gain access to some other amazing benefits, including fantastic articles, webinars, discounted tutorials, software, books, and a lot more. It's such a great place, and I'd love to see you there. Just head over to npn.link forward slash f-stop to join. You can also use the code f-stop10 for a 10% discount. That's npn.link forward slash f-stop. Okay, let's get to this week's episode with Matt Palmer. All right, Matt Palmer, it is great to have another Matt on the podcast. Yeah, thanks. We're definitely taking over, and uh, we've got the same haircut as well, although you probably won't be able to tell under my beanie. Yeah, but bald mats unite, right? Exactly. (laughs) Well, I'm a pretty big fan of your photography, and I've been really enjoying the conversations we've had over the last few months, and, you know, like, it's just, it's great to finally put a name and a voice with the photography. Yeah, thanks. Likewise, it's been great uh, getting to know you a little bit better as well as some of the American photographers. And uh, I think competitions like yours and the podcast have been really great for discovering a whole new group and community of people as well. Yeah, right on. That's cool. Thank you for saying that. Well, so for people that aren't familiar with you, I would love for you to tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, Well, I'm currently based up in the Victorian highlands of Australia. So I'm lucky enough to have about three different mountain kind of areas around us here. We're in a little town of about 2,000 people and we run a little gallery. And when I say we, that's uh, myself and my partner Mika Boynton, who I think you're going to be hearing from fairly soon as well. And um, I've probably shot a bit of everything since I came into photography. I was originally a graphic designer, but then I started transitioning into photography across my work. Uh, I was photographing sports teams. I photographed live music for about 15 years because that's a real passion of mine as well. And um, found my way into landscape photography maybe 10, 
I know, but years ago. What's easier, landscape or music, live music? Um, I would say live music is probably a little bit more difficult technically, but it's easier to come away with something because you're basically given the action and it's put in front of you and then all you have to do is capture it. Whereas I think landscape, you're kind of relying on nature a lot to try and give you something as well. Yeah, that makes sense. I was thinking that's probably what you were going to say, but I wasn't sure, you know, there's a reason why you went to landscape, which would love to hear that. Why did you decide to venture into the landscape side of things? Say I was living up in Brisbane, and for anyone that knows Brisbane in Australia, it's pretty much a sprawling suburbia and uh, not very inspiring at all. But I was lucky enough to travel to Norway and in Iceland, and back at the time I was pretty much of the attitude where if there wasn't a person in the photograph, I wasn't all that interested in it. Going to those countries, and to put it into perspective, I wasn't even traveling with a tripod at the time. Uh, that kind of changed my mind of what the world could look like. How was it like? I managed, but I, I'd say that there's not many uh, photographs from my first Iceland trip up in the gallery or anything like that. <laughs> but I was lucky enough to uh, go back after a few years of shooting almost exclusively landscape photography. So I did it a little bit better justice that time. Well, we're going to dive right into the heart of things here, Matt, um, just to get things real spicy right off the bat. So... You know, I have had the fortune to get to know you a little bit better over in our Discord channel, and you had mentioned to me that uh, you had a bit of a rough childhood, and without going to the, into too much detail, I would love for you to tell us a little bit more about that and reflect on how that experience has shaped you as a as a photographer. Yeah, I would say um, it feels almost like a, a different life than the one that I'm living now, and I almost feel like as you grow older, this probably comes off a bit philosophical but it's almost like you're several different people in your lifetime mm. so for me that was uh, I don't really feel all that related to but I would say that it probably instilled in me a pretty fierce idea of justice and growing up around a lot of injustice um, that's something that probably is still reflected in me now so as an example there was a time in my childhood where this is a, a gang in New Zealand I'm going to introduce, but the Mongrel Mob, which anyone in New Zealand has probably heard of. And they're quite a powerful gang that's kind of New Zealand-wide. And I remember I was maybe six or seven, and they robbed our house about three times within six months and literally took everything, including the food. So they would actually steal your blankets and use those to steal the food out of your fridge and then steal the fridge as well, so... Uh, my life was rough in many different ways, and that was certainly one of them. Yeah, that sounds like that would really harden you as a person. <laughs> yeah, I guess so, and um, probably not in always good ways. Right. I'd say there's probably some sort of aspects of my personality that I wouldn't even attribute to that that probably are related to that. Um, but I would say it's reflected in some of my... I've done a Faces of Islam project because I felt like the treatment of Muslims in Brisbane at the time was kind of unwarranted and based on stereotype. So um, that was a project that I felt like it uh, identified an injustice and tried to do something about that. And then there's also the topic of 
environmental injustice as well and how the landscape and habitats are treated by humans. Yeah, it sounds like the theme of injustice is kind of woven into a lot of your photography. I'm curious if that's been more and more of an intentional move on your part or if it was something that you kind of discovered over time that it was something you wanted to explore more deeply. Yeah, I would say that I come to each idea fairly separate and in isolation. A lot of it is just a big issue that's kind of reaching out or affecting me at the time, Uh, not even directly, but perhaps it's just something I'm noticing a lot of. And and, um, I'm not quite ready for a career in politics just yet, so (laughs) probably my best approach is to try and do something about it photographically and whether I can make an impact in that way. Yeah, I feel like these day the days that we're living in right now there's just so many issues that any number of us could like get angry about and you know feel i don't know about you but i i constantly am barraged with all of these things that i i'm just frustrated by and don't feel like i have any power or influence to change and so i'm wondering if trying to do something about it through your photography is has helped you cope with some of that feeling of uh you know, helplessness. Yeah, I think so, especially when you get feedback on those things. Um, I'd say that my later project, Ash, probably not quite as much, but a lot of that had to do with COVID, kind of interrupting everybody's plans for a couple of years. (laughs) It was a project about uh, photographing and documenting bushfire and climate change. And then I had planned, I put together a proposal to exhibit it in quite a unique way Um, But then COVID came and all the festivals were cancelled and uh, then we had huge bushfires on the mainland, which almost kind of dwarfed the fires that I had been documenting. So I almost feel like if I were to revisit that right now, it would probably be a group exhibition. As you know, um, Samuel Markham um, had a excellent photograph that was recently featured in your competition about bushfires as well. So there's an amazing amount of work out there. Yeah, I feel like there's a lot of opportunity for t- for photographers to try to make an impact through their images. And I know you won the NLPA project of the year last year with your project, Ash. And I'm curious, what was it about uh, our competition that made you want to submit it? I think first and foremost, I just wanted to support the competition because it is giving a different place and space for a different style of work ultimately um but for me that particular project it's kind of getting it out there under as many eyes as possible and if it has a little bit of prestige behind it then that could help put it into different spaces in future as well so other people can see it cool yeah what do you hope to accomplish with that particular project i mean it's still being seen by people for the first time so there's it seems like there's lots of opportunity for more movement yeah i guess um i've had a couple of years of curbing my enthusiasm to use that reference (laughs) uh, in terms of that project because i think my original concept was there's a huge festival in tasmania run by mona which is this modern art gallery that's world class and the people that run that aggressive views on how things can be done and how art can be shown. 
and so I wanted to show an art exhibition of the bushfires, but in the city context for people that may not have gone out into those areas and seen those things. And the idea was that uh, if I could, I'd probably bring in some of the burnt logs and fallen trees and things and actually position them within a warehouse and kind of create a journey in which you go through the warehouse, mostly in the dark, but with like some dim illumination to see each of the individual photographs. And then you would have the smell of ash, you could have the sounds of the forest as well, playing within the warehouse space, and having all of the pictures on easels that are kind of all mounted from the ceiling, that are kind of spotlit, so you're kind of walking through the darkness, hopefully in a safe way, but discovering all of these images and also hearing and smelling and feeling what's happening in those spaces as well. I'm curious, do you, do you think that art can have a significant impact on reshaping society's views on subjects such as climate or, for example, your other project, like how we treat people from other nationalities or religions? Like, do, do you that's possible? Uh, I would say it's about this. Okay. Uh, certainly it has been possible. So we've seen people like Peter Dombrovskis or Adams in America and um, to another extent the kind of people that, you know, the Napalm Girl photograph, mm -hmm. those kind of photographs have impacted around the world and they've made really tangible society. It's definitely something that has happened. But whether that can continue to happen in a world where we're so saturated with images and saturated with messages and everybody is fighting for our attention, I'm not 100% sure. I think you can make impact in smaller communities, though, and um, make impacts in your local area or on specific topics. And you could use a project like Ash or something that one of your viewers, um, listeners, uh, working on that could be useful in terms of talking to one of their local uh, parliamentarians or politicians to try and make change. But uh, it's not the same world where you can just put an image out there and everybody will respond to it, I don't think. Uh, what are what are some ways do you think we could amplify those messages in, in such a competitive and flooded space? I think ultimately it's uh, pretty difficult, but it's about meeting people in their space rather than trying to get them into our space. So there's a really awesome can Australia and a lot of people have seen, and it's simply um, people of different ethnic backgrounds. So like wearing a turban is with Aussie written underneath. And it's kind of like a, almost looks like kind of a screen print or an old style poster. And those have been popping up in different places around Australia. And that has had some sort of societal flow through in terms of people really recognizing that what an Australian is, is a very different thing and a very diverse thing. So I think that kind of engaging people on their streets is possibly more impactful than engaging people that already think the way that you do when they walk in your gallery or into the space that you are working in. Well, I know you've already talked a lot about working in projects, but I was curious if you could talk a little bit about why you work in projects and how working in projects um, helps you as a photographer. Well, I, I 
probably qualify that by saying if there's a great shot that's not part of a project, I'll still be out there taking it. But I think having project given time, it really gives you a focus and it is training your eye to look for certain things. So I found it really personally valuable. And it is very satisfying when you're actually pulling together you know, 20 to 30 images that really speak to a specific topic, whether they give an exhibition or because you're creating a body of work that you want to have, um, you want to say something with. So for me, I think it's deeply rewarding to photograph in that way. What's your, what's your process for curating images that go into a project? I feel like, you know, with the NLPA projects we saw, you know, there was a lot of projects that had, you know, maybe seven images were really good and maybe three were kind of just thrown in there because they felt like they sort of went with the theme. Um, and then you had other projects where they only had eight photos, um, but almost, almost too cohesive. So, like, how do you make a body of work that isn't, too homogenous but also doesn't isn't too separate i would say that this is a lesson that i've learned along the way as well and i did shoot a series called abandon in iceland which probably suffered from some of those problems and i hope to finish that project at some point and probably give it a better name but uh, i would say that in the project you're probably going to benefit from approaching things the same way photographically so probably a consistency on what platform you're shooting in, what kind of framing you're going to use. Are you going to switch from vertical to portrait, um, vertical to horizontal a lot? Um, when you're presenting all those together, is it going to feel like it should be together or not in terms of your style and presentation? And if you can get those things consistent, then use that to show a lot of different ways of looking at the subject or telling a lot of different parts of that story and when you're when you're photographing a project there's no pressure to tell the whole story in one picture so it allows you to take those really detailed kind of shots or to delve into one part of a really big story so yeah i would just say um, keep your style consistent think about how it's all going to sit together whether that's on a wall or in a book and um yeah then explore the topic as deeply as you can and then once you get into curating, be as brutal as possible. And if it's not contributing to the story and showing people some different way of seeing that story, then it might be one that sits to the side unless it date and tells something new. I think that makes a lot of sense. So I find that whole curation piece to be one of the most difficult things to do as photographers, whether we're releasing a new gallery or you know, if it's a trip report or, you know, whatever it is, I, f I feel like that is probably one of the most overlooked skills uh, we can develop as a photographer. And, and I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on how to develop that skill. Yeah, I'd just say that um, if you're curating a project or an exhibition, there's going to be a lot of photographs that you love that are left on the cutting floor, and that's okay, and you should expect that. And perhaps if you look at what you've, you don't see anything that you love, then maybe you might not have cut hard enough. <laughs> um, I'd say a good visual way of doing it is perhaps to print out all of the photographs that you're considering on like a piece of paper, 
and then kind of scatter them around a table and move them around and cluster them into groups of what's telling a certain story and kind of work out what is needed and what isn't. But I think that visual way of doing things with a tangible print can be helpful. I like it. I like it. I know that you also judge a lot of competitions down there. Um, I'm curious, what are your overall thoughts on competitions and how should people decide which ones to enter? Yeah, um, that's a pretty broad question. Okay, so what do I think of competitions? Well, personally, speaking for myself, I didn't enter competitions for a long time and I almost I was probably of the mind of a lot of people that don't enter competitions and that is why do I need these people judging my work or what are they even going to be able to tell me about this genre of work that I'm shooting or the caliber of people that were putting their work into those competitions and I thought well you know these aren't silly people so they're clearly getting something from it and the worst you can do is just try it out and see what happens. So for me, that was the start of a journey that pretty much improved my photography tenfold. So um, since I started doing that, I've won Australian Photographer of the Year, which is one of the biggest things that you can win in Australian photography. And I would say that I, without having gone through that process and had people pick apart my work, and even the process before you enter a competition of creating a group of friends that have a good photographic eye and showing them work and them showing you their work. Um, those things kind of train you up and without that I would be pretty average these days I think. I'd still be taking photographs that look nice but that's about it. Whereas being part of that process has really refined my work, made me see in different ways and also kind of given me a different visual language as well to work within. In terms of um, what was the second part of the question, how to choose what competition or how to yeah, because there's a lot. <laughs> yeah, uh, there's so many competitions now, and a, a lot of good ones as well. But I don't even enter all of the good ones. You've got to be pretty picky about where you want to spend your money these days. I would say uh, there's probably a few different reasons why you might enter a competition, and that is that its values might align with NLPA. That's certainly the case with me. Uh, you might also enter, uh, look at what happened when a competition. Hmm. So that is, do they receive feedback? Do they receive some scores that they can then use in a way where they can work out where their work sits within that kind of framework? But ultimately, um, you know, even the best photographers, they're going to lose more competitions than they win. And uh, I'd be concerned if that wasn't the case. So what happens for those people that don't win? That's really important, I think, when you're deciding what competitions to enter. What do you think is the best way to find that kind of information out? Because I, what I've found is a lot of competitions publicize that type of information in terms of what happens after, things like that. So. Yeah, I'd be looking for any competition that says that they're offering feedback, whether that's through a feedback session, which I believe that you guys are working, um, whether there's written feedback. So there's a lot of competitions now that are starting to introduce like an additional fee per image. 
which um, thankfully a lot of that is going towards the judge because it's a lot of work to judge those things. Yes. But uh, if you get written feedback on the specific, it can be really technical or it can also be about the narrative of the image or how somebody's feeling about it. But I think any feedback that tells you how somebody else is responding to what you're making can be valuable, even if you disagree with it. It's good to see that other perspective. And uh, it also helps to see things like the judging panel. So are those people that you respect or you read their bios and go, okay, that's that person sounds like they know what they're doing. And um, yeah, I'd say any opportunity for that and any competition that seems like they're aware of that kind of experience and it's not just, you know, enter your photograph and get a digital stamp or something like that. And you can also look at comp maybe there's more than a first place. So maybe there's a top 100, maybe you get a highly commended, uh, if you get to a certain level or you get a silver or a gold or something like that, because there's a lot of competitions that have a, a really good prestige. And if you say, oh, well, I, I won two silvers in this competition, then that can still be a valuable thing, even if you didn't win the whole competition. So those kind of um, in-between goals that you can try and achieve while not necessarily aiming for something that's unrealistic. And I say that um, personally, thinking that it's fairly unrealistic for me to go into any situation expecting to win anything. But if I can get something that's kind of in between, or as I say, if I can be part of the conversation at the end of it, and that is when people go, oh, who should win? Uh, do you think that guy should win? And I probably go, um, yeah, maybe not. Uh, but if you're even part of that conversation, then that in itself is a huge achievement as well. Makes sense. Well, you know, I've, as an organizer myself, I find the whole selecting judges and giving judges good instructions piece to be really important. Well, um, to give you some context, I come from a background where our national competitions have historically been a live panel. So often you have five judges that are responding to a print that they've just seen live and then having to talk about it and debate it and score it. So from that perspective, I would say that teamwork is probably one of the most important things a judge can bring to the table, hmm. especially if they're making a consensus decision, not just a decision themselves. I think if you're judging a competent say, then that's a, a lot easier. But <laughs> when you're working with a panel, you have to understand that the, the rest of the people are there because they contribute just as much as you do. And so you've got to be willing to be flexible and uh, try and understand what the other people might be seeing that you aren't. And that can be a really great opportunity for learning as well as a judge, I think. So yeah, I would say, first of all, um, that desire to work as a team and as a team unit and to come to a consensus as a group about where that image places. And uh, I think a lot of judges might fall into the trap of trying to win, and that is they want the image that they're really passionate about to do or get the score that they want but it's not really about that. It's trying to assess things in a fairly impartial way and come to the right decision as a group. I'd say apart from that, um, being able to articulate about images and rather than just saying, oh, you know, I love this image or I like this image, uh, brutal. But if we said stuff like that on a panel, we'd actually get kicked off the judging panel. We're not allowed to say that we like things. We uh, have to articulate why it is that we like that thing and get straight to that point. 
because often there's not a lot of time to beat around the bush so yeah 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 i think that's important for sure and i think sometimes language can be a barrier um also at least the sheer amount of time you have because hundreds and hundreds of photographs you need to look at like you have to be pretty fast but also articulate at the same time which isn't necessarily everyone's skill set no and uh it's like public speaking i guess there's um photographers that are amazing at what they do but uh, get them to stand up in front of an audience and talk about it and that can be very difficult and it's the same with judging it's a kind of separate skill that leans on your photography skills but it is its own thing as well in terms of competition do you see them playing as it relates to our community and the direction of our visual medium competitions they're not always a positive thing they can be a positive thing they bring people together and they highlight what we um what a group of people say is exceptional photography and there's always been some division about how that's interpreted within a wider community as you've seen from say pedopixel comments or something like that yes there's always somebody that doesn't quite agree with what's going on and um there's a saying that not too much sleep at the moment but uh i think it's that 90 percent of people agree that judges don't get it 100 percent right but images they get wrong no <laughs> so um yeah i would say that in the wider community there's should be a great acceptance of what competitions are and that is that they're basically a closed ecosystem they have their own styles their own tastes they know what they're looking for and that isn't necessarily a judge of good or bad photography in general it's just uh, that genre and that style of photography and those messages or narratives are being judged within that closed system and if you don't succeed within that system, there might be another system in which you can succeed. Um, so, yeah, I think a lot of people take it a little bit personally or they feel like a competition is trying to make a judge for photography. But the reality is, you know, natural landscape is looking for the best of natural landscapes and images that speak to nature and exhibit our world in a way that's authentic. Whereas there are other competitions that are looking to push the barriers of what photography is as much as possible and are all about innovation and originality and seeing things that they've never seen before or using new techniques. So there are so many different competitions that are all saying different things. And I think just a wider acceptance that they're not all trying to say that's good and that's bad. It's a little bit more than that. Perfect. Well, shifting gears a little bit, you know, I, like I said earlier, we both belong to a Discord server where we have some great conversations with a lot of other photographers from all over the world. And one thing that I've noticed is that there seems to be a, some photographers that tend to kind of put down the camera uh, when they're feeling negative thoughts about their work or, you know, if they're just not having a good year or month or whatever. And, um, or if maybe people have said some negative things about their f photographs. Um, and for me, that kind of seems opposite of what we see in other artistic disciplines. So I'm curious kind of what your thoughts are on why this happens in photography. Yeah, um, I guess maybe it's why people come to photography and maybe it is an outlet that they want positivity from. 
but uh, personally I see it kind of as any other art form, just the art form that I prefer. And there's people in music or painting and that say things with their art form that is quite different to what people often say in photography. Although you do see a little bit different outside of landscape. You um, In documentary, there's a lot more focus on perhaps some of the more negative aspects of the human condition. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I think as well, having come from a design background... Um, maybe not other people, but certainly myself. Sometimes you get more done in two or three hours than you do for the rest of the week. You just go into like a bit of a flow state or that eureka moment hits you and then it just all falls together. And I feel like that doesn't necessarily happen unless you're kind of embracing the grind, so to speak. So I think sometimes, uh, even if you're not feeling it, just being out there and going through the process of taking photographs and looking for things even if you're not getting what you want that time, it's training you and making everything second. When you do have that moment that excites you, you're not fumbling around with what dial your shutter speed is on or anything like that. You're in the practice of having taken images recently, and so you're ready to capture that exciting thing. So yeah, I would just say embrace the grind, and part of that perhaps is having different levels to your photography that are acceptable so I recently started looking at my photography in a fairly different way because the top 0.5% if that actually goes into some sort of form of artwork or anything like that but then there's a lot of photographs that have been taken that are actually quite good that it's not useful for my purpose so I've kind of got this tier system where I have something that's worthy of say being printed large in a gallery and then I've got stuff that's maybe worth being printed small in the gallery. Then I've got stuff that's worth commercial um, licensing. So you could be licensing through stock or something like that, where it's it's a nice photograph of that thing in a way that people want to see it, but it's not for me or any of my purposes. And then there might even be um, some things that you can release on Creative Commons that might be useful to other artists, but aren't actually all that useful to anything that you've got and aren't really undercutting anybody else. So having those tiers kind of gives me something to do with the work that is the bulk of what I take. And I think that's probably similar for a lot of landscape photography. You might only show the top 1% of what you do. But if you can find something to do with, say, 20% of what you do, then you feel a little bit less bad if you don't get the 1% every time you go out. How do you how do you organize that from like if you go out on I don't know like a five day shoot and you come back like how how do you dis- decide which is going to go into what bucket? Uh, I probably just um, edit it and I certainly don't shoot in this way. I just um, kind of catalog in this way later on. Yeah. But uh, I, I tend to be a lazy editor and I use Lightroom and just chuck things into folders or use the color tagging system to kind of display how I've thought about images and I'm not always necessarily right the first time. You know, you always come back to a catalog and see things that you didn't see the first time. So I wouldn't jump to any rash decisions, but every so often I'll just go back through some old shoots and go, all right, well, I'm never going to use that for anything, but it isn't a bad photograph. So maybe it can go into this bucket. That makes sense. And then once it's in those other buckets, what is your process for getting it out into the world for those purposes? 
Um, so the gallery stuff, uh, we kind of curate maybe quarterly. So each season at this stage, we're pretty early in that game, so it could change. But right. we um, put the images that we're really feeling strongly about into some decision folders, so to speak. And then Mika and I will sit down and look at the work and go, all right, what are we going to print out? What sizes and where's it going to go? Um, for the kind of stock level stuff, uh, these days I just use a service called Wirestock. That's basically the lazy way of doing stock photography. And they basically submit it to a bunch of different sites and you only have to submit it to them and then they take their cut and pay you the rest down what's making money per the sites that they have submitted to, which is pretty handy. And to be honest, um, these days no one's going to really get rich out of stock photography, certainly not if you're starting today. Right. But you can make some decent enough money out of it. Um, I probably only have about a thousand images in stock, but uh, I make enough to um, maybe one or two thousand. I was going to say, like, you can buy a couple <clears throat> of beers over the course of the year. <laughs> yeah, a couple of beers or a lens or, you know, something here or there. Right. And if you're not. The important thing is to not spend too much time on it because <clears throat> obviously your time has a value as well, so you have to factor that in. You could be doing something with your own family or you know, your own profession that could be more valuable. So you got to try and make those things as uh, less time consuming as possible, which is why I tend to go with wire stock. Um, but, you know, it's handy money that comes through without making any further effort. So, yeah, why not? <laughs> that makes sense right on um so you've talked a little bit about this already but um you know you're running a gallery with your partner mika and by the way she has some really amazing photography as well <laughs> and you guys just crossed over the one year mark and i'm sure that it's been an incredibly challenging uh, endeavor for both of you what would you attribute your success to? Uh, I'd just say, first and foremost, we both love what we do and we wouldn't want to be doing anything else. So we both have professions that we can fall back to. We could go more into commercial if I needed to. Mika could go into teaching and some other... Av but we're all in. So when we took over this little gallery, it needed to have everything basically torn out of it because it was an old um, room and it hadn't been paid a lot of attention for about 20 years. There's uh, really bad paint all over the walls, no red brick, all different colors mixed in, there's dodgy carpet. So everything got torn out and we probably thousand Australian dollars just getting everything off the ground. Wow. So I've got to give credit to Mika for that one because she's been saving for this for a long time. But we were like, wow, this is a lot of money and we've got no guarantee of success, but we need to go all in because if we hold back and we're a year down the line and we're like, this isn't sustainable, then we'll be asking, is it not sustainable because a gallery isn't sustainable or isn't it sustainable because we didn't give it 100% and we let it down somewhere? So, um, yeah, we went all in and we're lucky enough to be able to stay open. So I've been successful in that way, obviously learning a lot as we go. Uh, but I think neither of us would want to be doing anything else. And before I met Mika, I was making inquiries about opening a gallery in Tasmania. So uh, in that regards, 
our relationship kind of happened at the right time and probably just in time because had I opened something in Tasmania just before coming up here, that would have been a bit tricky. Yeah, no doubt. What, uh, what has been the biggest challenge for you guys to keep the doors open? Uh, um, we've had quite a lot of challenges. Uh, the first one is pretty much the week we were going to open was when Omicron started spreading and we were like, oh, we thought we were just through this and now there's a new thing. Um, so that was a bit of a concern and has probably affected us, but it's so hard to tell whether that's affecting you really. Um, at the moment we've got floods, so no one's really traveling into rural Victoria at the moment. So there's those challenges and there's also your own expectations. So yeah, there's been some community events that bring thousands of people into the town and we think, oh, this is going to be fantastic. There's so many people around and look at art when they're doing these other things. So we've now realized that just because there's a big event in town doesn't actually mean it's going to help us at all. We're actually better off on the quieter times. Uh, so just keep learning things. Um, in terms of obstacle, I'd say financially, probably that we're fairly un uncompromising on quality. And that comes at a uh, we've got more money through the doors than we budgeted for or expected, but we've also spent more money on printing and products than we expected as well. So, um, but that said, we kind of manage those risks as best we can. And um, as much as I prefer the art side of things, I also really like looking at numbers, um, not so much the um, accounting numbers, but you know, I've created all these automatic spreadsheets that have our stock and how much profit each image has generated and how many times an image has sold on different kind of formats. And uh, it's interesting which images are resonating with people as we go as well. Yeah, I suspect that that is a useful tool to help determine what images you want to keep on the walls and which ones that you're that are in your library that have to bring in. So. That seems like a really good idea. Yeah, and I, I think we've been, uh, from the start, my kind of slogan that makers probably sick of hearing has been that we run a gallery. A gallery doesn't run us because we do have friends that run galleries and they're almost subservient to their gallery. Like it's really hard for them to walk away and do other things. And they're always wanting to be involved just in case some extra, you know, a big spender comes through the door or something like that. So going into it we are not here one of those days where a big spender wants to buy art and so be it because we need to have time where we go out and photograph or travel so we um, are prepared to make that sacrifice and we also don't just want to be a gallery where people see what the top sellers are like they walk in the door and go oh that's a photo of that mountain that's nearby and that's that heart and everything is looking really commercially great we um, like to get people in with some of the things that they expect, but then really change what they think of photography as they view what's in the gallery as well. So we have some pretty quirky work. And, um, you know, we've got the Ocean Deity that won the Abstract Details category of NLPA as a huge canvas that's in the window. And we did that before it won as well. So it was some, uh, an image that I was certainly backing as um, perhaps been captivating to some people. Yeah, it certainly captured a lot of people's attention, I think. Uh, so before you 
open the doors, I'm curious kind of what some of the tools or processes you both used in terms of kind of determining what all needs to happen before you could open. I mean, I'm thinking like business plan, marketing plan, you know, what are some of the things that you guys did in order to maximize your success? Yeah, you probably bring up a valid point. We need to upgrade our marketing and um, business plan probably now that we've been here for one year. Um, Sorry about I'd that. Say... <laughs> <laughs> no, that's all good. It's um, good to remember to focus on those things and not just get stuck into the everyday. Uh, yeah, I'd say that we had a plan and we had kind of an estimate of what we could bring in the door based on what prints might sell. But ultimately it was all made up there hadn't been a, a photography gallery where we are before that we know of at least and so we were kind of working on imaginary numbers hoping that we would sell a certain amount of things but all at a hundred percent and then if that wasn't working then we would step away from it so hard especially mika to we could do that one of the things that we did in terms of preparation is I'm a bit of a design nerd, so coming from my background. So I had measured up every wall in the gallery and had those at scale in InDesign. Nice. And then I also had a sheet of every artwork that we created, like our products, and what size they were to scale in InDesign. And then we planned what was going to go on each wall and what the configurations were going to be way ahead of time. So we knew what we were going to order and um, especially going because we opened just before Christmas and our suppliers would be closed over Christmas, uh, what we thought might sell and what we really needed to start off with. And it was quite amusing because um, a lot more like large canvases and large prints to start and Mika was a lot more conservative about it. It's like, oh no, those aren't going to rush out the door. And um, so we had opened the gallery with, I think, two to three really big pieces and um, I think it was on day two that somebody walked in and was like, yeah, I'll have the biggest one that you've got. And so it got to the point where we were starting to run out of stock um, just in, during that period of time. So uh, that was a pretty fun detail. That's a nice problem to have. <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, although when people are walking through the door and you feel like that they would go big if, if you had that, and you don't have that, then that can be a little bit painful. Right. Um, but we won't have that problem this year. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, you know, we're, in, we're involved in a lot of conversations on that Discord channel about business and how to market your photography and things like that. And I'm constantly seeing is that um, there's a lot of photographers that kind of have this grandiose idea. They're like, oh, I'm just going to open a gallery or I'm just going to like find a gallery that wants to show my photography or whatever. And what I find is that photographers don't spend nearly thinking about the actual business plan and how you're going to sustain the business and how you're going to market it and like running the numbers and figuring out, okay, I have to sell this many prints of this size in this amount of time if I want to keep the doors open and so I'm curious, like, what advice would you have for someone who's kind of thinking about trying to do the same thing? Well, um, my advice would probably start from my design background, and that is the first question I ever ask is who the target audience is. 
So you've got to know who you're looking at to buy your art and what that is actually based on as well. Do those people really want to buy your art or are you just hoping that they want to buy your art? So if you can get feedback on your work as much as possible, and then I would say even if you're just showing your work online and people go, oh yeah, I would totally buy that, maybe take 10% of those people as the people that will actually open their wallets and put some money on the table and buy something. <laughs> I made that mistake early on when I opened a t-shirt company when I was a lot younger. Mm. And everyone was like, oh man, I totally want all of those t-shirts to open up. And then like 10% of those people actually bought stuff. So yeah, you can't rely on that kind of positive feedback, but you do need to get an idea of what's going to resonate with people and what the context is going to be for where your work is going to go. So that is, does it sit in somebody's home? Is it more commercial art that's going to be in a, a hotel and you're going to sell 50 artworks to the one hotel? Or you know, you've got to have a vision of where your work is actually going to end up on somebody else's wall because unless that happens, if that doesn't happen, then there's no money. So that's probably the first thing I would think of. And then the second thing is being really realistic about all of the expenses involved. And I'd probably also say if you're starting out now, it's extremely hard to sell work online. So to give you an idea, I probably sold more prints in my first month running a gallery than I did in 10 months selling print um, in 10 years because people need to see things and the imagination that we have as artists doesn't always extend to the kind of people that are going to buy the art necessarily. So, um, you know, I guess an ideal client of a photographer might be somebody that's like an engineer or a lawyer or, and they're not necessarily going to be able to pre-visualize what you do being in their space. But if they can see a tangible, you know, product and they can see it on a wall and we often in the gallery even just go, oh, that partition is three meters wide. So people can go, oh, well, my room is like three or four meters wide. Right. So then they can start to pre-visualize that as well. So you've really got to help them be able to do that. Yeah, absolutely. It's critical to to think about what all of the pain points are going to be for your for your customer, and try to anticipate what they're going to have issues with, and then try to pre-answer a lot of those issues for them so that they have no issues pushing the buy button. You know. <laughs> yeah, and I think one of the tricky things is really working out where to price your work at yes and one of the biggest pieces of advice that i've received and that i would give is that uh, you are not your customer so what i would spend on a piece of artwork isn't what i should assume other people would spend on a piece of artwork yes and a lot of the people that i deal with probably make a lot more money than i do so um, there's people that walk into the gallery and they're like, oh, that's a little bit expensive, but not too many of those people. And then there's people that walk in and go, oh, that's $2,000. Yeah, no worries. Here you go. And they don't even think about it. Yeah. So you, if you know your customer and know what their kind of financial background is going to be, then your points are going to be for them as well. And you've got to make sure that it's... Uh, worthwhile to yourself as well regardless of however you're selling the artwork people that I love dearly who um, you know sell books or prints and they may make like 10 and it's like oh with all of the effort that you go to the time 
uh, everything that you invest in making this thing and then you make make like five dollars or something out of selling it it's a bit painful uh, i feel like their time should be rewarded in a, in a bigger way yeah and you know i think it is true if if you if you price your work too low people aren't going to think it's value wrong with it or it's low quality or you know like oh what, what's wrong with it you know what i mean so i think some it's weird but sometimes if you price your work higher you'll sell it more it, it's kind of counterintuitive i think yeah i think communicating the value of something is really important and i would say that price does not equal value so a lot of people they think oh that's expensive but something that's five dollars can be expensive and something that's you know a thousand dollars can be cheap so it's really what the thing is that is actually important and how valuable that thing is so you could have an artwork for two thousand dollars and you're like wow that was so cheap to get that artwork for two thousand dollars and then you could buy a print for twenty five dollars and go oh that was a bit expensive for what it is yep so yeah understanding the value of what you do as well as the value of how you present it and choosing the right papers or the right presentation options is pretty important yeah, I'm curious what uh, what other th variables impacted uh, you and Mika's conclusions on how to price and market the work in the gallery. And specifically, I'm wondering a little bit more about the use of limited editions. Yeah, we had a lot of discussions around limited editions before we opened, and <laughs> we both have a couple kind of limited editions that are floating in the background. So it's something that we've both done in the past, but we talked to a number of different photographers that were pretty experienced and knew what they were doing a bit more than we do. And like the origin of limited editions comes from things like block printing, where as the number of the edition went on, the quality would deteriorate. So it made sense that you would want an early edition. But I think with photographers and how much work they actually sell, like say you have a limited edition of 100, but you're likely to only ever sell 10 of those. And 10 probably pretty good for a lot of photographers if they're selling online. That's not really limited because you're always gonna have more that you can sell. So I feel like unless you're actually selling out that edition, it's not really limited. So um, personally, I like Realm or even less if you want and uh, one thing that I've seen Christian Fletcher do that I really like is his one of ones every so often that he releases. And I feel like that makes it really special to say that there's only one of those. Um, but ultimately we went with open editions and we've got one that's called a deluxe edition, which basically has the fanfare of a limited edition in terms of signing and pencil and that kind of stuff, as well as a certificate of authenticity and documentation but without the numbering and that allows us to keep things fairly affordable as well and they it works for us in terms of pricing but it also works for the end customer but i think if we were doing a special project where it made sense in the story of that project to limit things then we would still be open to it how have you found those two types of editions being received by your customer like that are oh, I need it to be a limited edition or I'm not going to buy it or because I feel like that's mostly something that's been kind of made up by the fine art market and it's not really something most 
buyers care about. But I could be wrong. Maybe you're hearing something else. Oh, now you could get us cancelled. The fine artists are going to come for us now. Um, <laughs> look, we might get maybe one in 300 at a guesstimate of people that even ask if we have limited editions. Uh-huh. And when we say that we don't have any limited editions up on the wall, they're not all that bothered by that. But ultimately, we find that people are buying what they're connecting to visually. Right. And that could just be because of the market that we're in and how we're promoting ourselves as well. We um, promote ourselves based on the imagery rather than on an investment. So if we were kind of going into it and targeting, you know, the top one, um, we might have a different sales strategy that might be like, you know, art is an amazing investment. Uh, Even the Australian government, one of the most profitable arms of that is the arm that owns art and the rise in value of that art has been a huge earner. Um, So there is that aspect, but we sell based on the imagery itself and people connect with it and it's a place that they've been or a feeling that they have and that's why they buy it. So our gallery is in a a small town between the mountains and so we have quite a few photographs of the local area, but we have about 50% that's actually interstate and international as well. So we have a lot of people that buy something because they want something from here and it brings in a feeling of nostalgia or they've been to this place so they want that on their wall. But then there's a lot of places, um, you know, they might buy an abandoned building in Iceland because of the feeling that gives them. Um, But thinking about it in terms of an investment. And I'm wondering, in your gallery, do you have kind of like everything from... You know, I can buy it as an easy present for my mom for Mother's Day, all the way up to I'm going to hang this massive print in my living room type pricing. I'm, I'm guessing it's everything in between. Uh, a little bit, but we are careful not to make it too busy or confusing for people. Uh-huh. So I think when you've got um, the space of somebody like Ken Duncan or Christian Fletcher, you can show a lot more different kinds of products, which is awesome. And... I particularly am a fan of Christian Fletcher's gallery. I think it's one of the best in Australia, if not. Uh, but for us, we've got limited space, so we need to really bed down and to be the right product for more people. And so we've got a couple of things like acrylic blocks, which is a print mounted to a block of acrylic. Or we've got A3 prints that come with matted and ready to go into an A3 frame. And so those are very accessible products. But we have the same things on the wall that we would have on the small products, necessarily. Because um, you don't want to kind of undervalue some of your artworks by putting them on the small gifty kind of things. So I'd say that a lot of the works that we have on the smaller sizes are either things that we want to test and see how people react to them. Or they're kind of, I wouldn't say not as good, but they're a different style of photography that probably isn't quite as artistic. And um, they can also be some prints that maybe we took on older cameras that don't quite have the same resolution as well. Right. (laughs) And then that scales all the way up to the really big prints. Sure. And then in terms of marketing your gallery and your work, like what are some of the different avenues that you're using in order to get people to come in the door? Yeah, well, I'll um, preclude this by saying I'm not a marketing genius, so (laughs) this is not the Bible on how to promote a gallery, but... (laughs) 
we just try and engage with the local events so we um get involved and have openings when we have the autumn and spring festivals uh we're also in our local kind of tourism news kind of booklet sometimes in the local uh, anything that people might read before they come to the area we try and look at whether it's worthwhile being in those things the difficulty as a business owner is really is worthwhile and i can't really give you the answer to that i think you just have to kind of feel it out because unless you're weirdly asking everybody at the door how they heard of you right um, or whether they read that issue of tourist news that can be quite difficult so those are definitely aspects and Mika has a, a really um, pretty strong social media following that she's built up as well so that does come in handy and a lot of the times when I'm in the gallery by myself people are like is Mika here so that's always amusing as well yeah yeah I noticed you don't even you like shut down your Instagram you're like go Go look at the gallery's Instagram. I don't even care anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just don't have time. Um, I would rather spend my time, say, making a website for a specific project than trying to shove everything on Instagram and hoping somebody uh, cares enough to click a button that they like it and then move on to the next picture. I just, um, for me personally, like there's a lot of people that it works really well for, but I don't feel as engaged with that kind of platform. Yeah, I feel that. <laughs> it's um for me it's up until like maybe a week ago it's brought me almost nothing but you know, some some day off. It's pretty rare though. <laughs> yeah, there there used to be a time where I, I was focused on and when I was running a wedding business um a long time ago before we talked about algorithms all the time, I'd probably book one or two jobs a month from just a Facebook page. But uh, once we started talking about algorithms and boosted posts and all that kind of stuff, that all went way downhill. And I'm sure there's people out there that are making a success of it and Mika does really well out of it. But uh, for me, I feel like I'm uphill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I get that. Um, well, so you also have a, a new YouTube channel that's keeping you busy. Um, I believe it's called Matt Talks Photography, which not gonna lie I'm a little jealous for not thinking of that before you did but that's fine maybe we can both come on your show and talk about photography that'd be kind of funny but uh what kind of things do you cover on your YouTube channel um yeah maybe we should make Matt and Matt on photography <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Can only just, Matt's um, can come on yourself. your show only Matt's yeah I have actually um, in the past, this is a bit of a tangent, but thought about doing a project that was just photographing and taking portraits of other Matt Palmers around the world. Because, <laughs> um, but that aside, um, sorry, what was the question? What do you talk about on your YouTube channel? Oh, <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, for me, I felt like there was a bit of a disconnect between the kind of things that you can learn in panel awards judging and that kind of thing by observing that process and what the photographic education is like on YouTube. There's a lot of how to and, um, you know, what to do, but there's not a lot of why and why do you do that or why do you do that the way that you do? Why do you photograph that? So I try and talk in the whys and the motivations behind things. And I feel like rather than just go, oh, what photograph that mountain? If you ask, why did you choose those settings to photograph the mountain? you're going to get a different response that's so much more educational. So a lot of that 
Uh, I've got a few regular kind of segments or video types that I do, and a lot of them are based on image critique and deconstruction, which sometimes gets people's backs up a little bit, uh, because I have a series where I, I look at the legends of photography, you know, like the Annie Libovitzes, Andreas Gursky, um, Ansel Adams, that kind of those kind of people and I look at 10 of their photographs and I try to come to it as raw as possible it's not always possible because some of the work is just so famous right uh, but then I talk about how either it could be improved or how it is working in its current form and I'll often draw some scribbles and things on the photographs and I feel like these people probably don't care that I'm really doing that they are uh, much more successful than I'll ever be so uh, but you get some people that are a little bit defensive when their heroes um, you point out that that image isn't actually quite perfect and perhaps if that highlight was altered, it could be improved. But I think critiquing things in that way, it's really going to open your mind to what people might see when they look at photography, especially photographic judges. It's uh, looking at things like the concept of visual hierarchy, which is something that I learned when I was a designer. And that is... Uh, what things in an image are you looking at and in what order and kind of what are the relative strengths of those elements that are pulling you from one point to another so really thinking about your images what you want them to say where you want the viewer to actually be looking and even perhaps what they're thinking or not thinking so um, yeah my youtube channel goes into a whole lot of that and tries to make it amusing every now and then as well well, not to put it back on you, but why did you decide to create the YouTube channel? Where you, I'm sure you weren't just bored. Like, it sounds like you're fairly busy. Yeah, it's so time consuming. It really is. <laughs> I don't recommend it to anybody. <laughs> I know. I tried to do it for a little bit, you know, and it's like, oh my gosh, I'm never going to get this done. <laughs> yeah, you've got enough on your plate already. Yeah. Uh, maybe you just need to have a beer appreciation YouTube and you can <laughs> right, drink a different beer each episode. Totally different, yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, I'd say I'd thought about it for a really long time, homework on it and what was going to be required and, you know, like microphones and cameras. I'm not on my good camera at the moment. All of the things that you might need to make the channel successful and I was kind of like, if I make the decision to do this, I'm all in. It's going to be one video a week, much as I possibly can. And I had read that you're pretty much going to be grinding it for two years before you can expect to get any traction whatsoever. So, okay, I'm going to be prepared to be ignored for two years, but hopefully I'll make good enough content that in two years' time somebody might go back through the archive and learn something that I've talked about or shown their photography. So um, there is that aspect. I think there's also, in previous roles that I've had in the photography industry, I've been lucky enough that... Um, being introverted, and this is kind of a bit of a tangent, I like to have jobs where I can talk to people. It gives me a reason to talk to them. Whereas if I'm just like hanging out, I'm not going to go out to those people and talk to them. So um, having a job or a YouTube channel, it gives me an excuse to reach out to people. And I'm sure you probably have that in your podcast as well. That it gives you an excuse to talk to different people. So um that's a really good aspect of it as well, and I'm hoping that I'll have a lot of interesting people on the YouTube in future when I've got the time to dedicate it to it. And uh, I had been working on a series of talks for another organization that unfortunately closed down, but before that I had people like Pete Souza and um, 
even like David LeChapelle and all of these amazing photographers that I was organizing to give talks at um, much under their normal rates, which are pretty astronomical for some of them. But yeah, I'd like to be able to do that again, basically, and bring people photographers and interesting speakers that they might not otherwise always have access to. I'm curious, uh, when you're doing your, your critiquing sessions for your videos, uh, how has that process translated into how you look at your own photography? Um, I'd say the judging process was when I was learning that it completely changed the way that I looked at my own photography. Uh, one of the earlier pieces of advice I was given, I was lucky enough when I first kind of started embracing the wider community that I had um, a man called Ian Poole, who is probably one of the best judges that Australia's ever produced in terms of photography, as well as a Nat Geo photographer, Darren Jew. They would print some of my awards entries for print awards. And so as part of that process, that always kind of pull me aside and start talking about the actual images themselves. And the very first awards I entered, they're always a bit of a crapshoot. And uh, if anyone you're entering awards, I kind of went in with this weird mindset where like, all right, I've never entered awards before and I can enter all of this stuff. So clearly what I enter is going to be really good because I've got this huge body of work and there's nothing that's excluded. So, you know, that's going to lead to good things, right? Um, and I entered like 12 prints and got, I think, two awards and a whole bunch of prints that were like one point off an award so I was kind of like a little bit humbled but also a little bit motivated by that um but yeah one of the prints they pulled me aside and they're like look this photograph it's beautiful but it leads your eye to this place and when you get to that place there's nothing there to reward you so it's just not <laughs> not a good photograph you know you can be as pretty as you like but unless it's saying something or it's leading you to the right things then you know, it's kind of just a bit of eye candy. So there is that aspect. I definitely look at my images differently. In terms of the channel, I'd say it's probably trying to keep my language and critique skills up because I'm not doing as much of that live panel judging as I used to because those organizations are closed down, but there are a few alternatives coming out now, which is great. Um, so yeah, it's just to keep me in that practice. And I think you learn a lot by teaching as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's amazing if you spend like two or three days just looking at other people's images that you've never seen before, you know, you're, you're going to start noticing all kinds of themes and things that dry your eye. And, and then you, and then you turn and you're like, oh yeah, I did the same thing they did, <laughs> you know, like, so I think it is helpful to kind of retrain the way you look at your own f photographs and be a little bit more critical of them. Yeah. And also I'd say, um, if you feel strongly enough about something, even if you don't feel like it'll do well, sometimes it's good just to, so I'd say for anyone entering competitions, you don't want to enter what you think the competition is going to like, like, obviously you want to be within the realm of possibility. Like you don't want to enter the natural landscape with some super glossy kind of crazy HDR um, thing which might be against the rules anyway but uh, you know it's got to be within the realm of possibility of that competition but don't enter what you think people are gonna just go for uh, enter what you go for and what speaks to you and what you really want to show people and you're excited about and later on 
I was really entering the stuff where whether it won or it didn't, I love the photograph and I just wanted to show people it. So I think that's a pretty good motivation generally. And um, yeah, sometimes you're going to be told by people you know that maybe that photograph's not so good, but it keeps coming back into your head and you have to do something with it. And maybe that's a sign that you need to enter it or show some people that work. I love it. All right, Matt. Well, wrapping things up, who would you recommend our listeners learn more about or who should we have on the podcast? Yeah, um, I think I already suggested Mika and you're already acting upon that, so that's great. Uh, she'll probably give you a completely different kind of episode than I will. Um, then we got people like Ricardo de Cuna, who's an amazing kind of illustrative landscape photographer. You've got Chris Saunders, who's probably one of the best in the world today. Who else? There's just so many incredible landscape photographers. I could just send you a massive list. Um, I don't think you've had Tony Hewitt on before. He would be interesting to talk about, and you've probably heard people mention him before as well. Uh, Paul Holland, uh, if you had him on, he would talk your ear off. Yeah, he would. Uh, but it would <laughs> all be good stuff. And um, their episode of their podcast kind of visual thing as well, which is awesome. Yeah, there, there's too many to list, uh, but that would be a good start. Well, awesome, Matt. This has been super fun. It's always good to meet another Matt and talk about photography and um, I'm really looking forward to seeing the work that you produce in the future and with you more in conversations about photography. It's been really wonderful. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, for anyone that's feeling judgmental about anything I've said, please keep in mind I'm on about three or four hours sleep. The time difference is a killer, but it's uh, well worthwhile. Well, thank you to Matt for the really fun conversation and for sharing your insights with us. I'm sure that there is some tidbit of information that you shared that will be valuable to at least one listener, and I think that's a huge success. As always, I'd love to hear from listeners about anything you gained from listening to the episode, and I hope that you enjoyed the show. If you did, please help us by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, or by sharing the episode on social media. I appreciate you a lot. The ultimate way to support the show, of course, is on Patreon, a platform that we use to keep the show going. It's expensive to run a podcast like this, believe me. A small monthly or annual contribution goes a long way. Thanks to those of you who already support the show, including our newest patron, Mark Davis. Mark joined at the $10 per month level and now has access to episodes before the rest of the public. I'm often one or two months ahead of schedule, so this is a great way to download a ton of episodes for an upcoming trip. You can even add our private Patreon RSS feed to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Overcast, and many other podcatching services. Through this, you can also download our bonus episodes automatically. Thanks to those of you already supporting the show, you rock. Okay, that is all for now. Thanks for stopping in collaborating with us, and listening. See you next week.